here's, here's, what, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like for you, if you've got um, a, a piece of paper or maybe the back of your bulletin or something handy and something to write with, I'm not going to ask you to share this with anybody. I just get something out. I just want you to write a couple of things down just between you and God, basically. And these are not things that you're going to have to bury your soul with or anything like that. But I, I want you to, to, to just write a couple of things down. Here, here's the, the first question. I want you to write down a couple of reasons why it is that you pray. Why do you pray? Maybe you're not a praying person, then write down why other people pray. All right? But if you are a praying person, why is it? Just a couple of reasons. Just jot them down. They're probably one-word answers. Probably something simple. I pray because this or I, you know, this or whatever. Why is it that you that you pray? So jot those two things down and, and, and kind of keep them handy. We're going to refer to this at the end of the service. Secondly, I want you to, to jot down maybe the first couple of things that come to mind on what it is that you pray about. What, what do you pray about? If you think through maybe the last week or so, and if you spent some time in prayer with the Lord, maybe you got up this morning and you, you began to pray, or, or maybe it was last night before you went to bed, or whatever it may be, what is it typically that you pray for or about or whatever? What is the subject of your prayers? So keep, keeping those two things sort of handy, why it is that you pray, a couple of reasons, and then what is it that you pray about? Just, just kind of look at that, and maybe, maybe that's eye-opening for you if you actually have to consider and think about it. Hmm, okay, I didn't realize, I, yeah, I do, kind of pray because of this, or I pray for that reason, or I didn't realize I was praying about that so much. It seems to dominate my prayers, whatever it may be. <clears throat> the, the, the truth is that the overwhelming majority of Americans pray. Most studies will tell you that somewhere around 80% of Americans pray on a regular basis. Now, we can't guarantee, of course, that they're all praying to the God of the Bible, but prayer seems to be an important part of our lives here in America. The overwhelming, even more overwhelming majority of people who claim to be born-again Christians pray on a weekly basis. Somewhere around 95% or so of people who say they are born-again Christians, committed to live their lives for Jesus Christ, pray on a regular basis. Interestingly enough, though, the average prayer is about five minutes or less. You probably have experienced that. You pray and you kind of, amen, okay, I guess that's it. You know, I'm pretty short, typically, whatever, but... But, um, but, but most people will pray. The truth is that we all have reasons why we pray. You've listed yours. Maybe there you pray because you think that maybe if God is listening, he can do something about what it is that you're going through. And you pray because we're hoping maybe God will get involved. Maybe you pray because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. The Bible says to pray. It's my prayer. Maybe you pray because you've got a lot of things going on in your life, and you, you just, you've got to leave it somewhere. And you say, Lord, take this stuff. And, I, and that's why I pray. Maybe maybe you pray because you just can't figure out any other way to, to do it. You can't, you can't figure out any other way to do life, and you just pray because of that. We all have things that we pray about. <clears throat> Some of you probably listed family stuff. I pray about my family a lot. I pray about health issues. I pray about friends. I, I pray about lots of different things. Some of you may pray for our church. Some of you may pray for, for specific people. We all have those reasons that we pray. We all have things we pray about. We all also have ways that we pray. Some of us are very formal in our prayers, uh, addressing God more maybe as a king or a judge uh, in the way that we talk to him. Uh, Some of us are very informal, addressing him as if he's just our buddy. 
and he's right there with us all the time, and he's our friend, and some of us sort of fall in between there. We sometimes recognize God is, uh, in the Bible, a judge and a king and a ruler, and then we recognize that he sent Jesus to show us how near and close he is, and, and then maybe we try different postures. Some of us will kneel when we pray. Some of us will pray standing up. Some of us maybe fold our hands, and maybe some of us bow our head and close our eyes. Some of us may get on our faces. Some of us may try to stand a certain way and hope, okay, maybe this will tune God in just a little bit. You know, I don't know. Maybe you pray in different ways. But we all have those things. We all also encounter various problems in prayer. Doesn't it it seem to be that sometimes God's not listening? Been there? Know what I'm talking about? You think, well, you have no idea. When you, all you do is read the Bible and pray all day long. You work one day a week. I, listen, I know the problems that are, that are experienced in prayer. Uh, it is difficult sometimes. You sometimes think your prayers just kind of hit the ceiling, come right back down, and the room's hollow, and it's sort of echoing. What in the world's going on? Sometimes you, you don't really know what to say. I, I've tried this. God, is this the right formula? Should I say these particular words in this order and then close in Jesus' name? Because Jesus said to pray in my name. Maybe that's it. Maybe I'm, I'm, I've been saying in your name. Maybe saying Jesus' name. Maybe it's the right words. Maybe, maybe God, there's something else. Maybe, maybe I, I'm experiencing the fact that, that I, I, I just I feel so ashamed to pray sometimes. And I just think, why in the world should God listen to me? And we experience all these things. If it's true that 80% of of American people and 95% of people who call themselves born-again Christians, the overwhelming majority, if if it's true that that's the number of people that pray, then I can venture to say that all of us in here are at least somewhat interested or intrigued or affected by prayer itself. We, We probably all practice it at some point. We probably all experience those same things. We probably listed a lot of the same reasons and a lot of the same things that we talk about. And so as we think about prayer today, it's not something that's just for those people who are really excited about God or they've got major issues where they ought to pray or whatever it may be. It's for all of us because we're all affected by this. So we've been in a series over the last few weeks, and we'll continue it today and finish in a couple of weeks, called Unstoppable. And we realized through this series that when Jesus told the Apostle Peter that I will build my church, Jesus talking, and it will be unstoppable, not even the forces of hell can stop what I'm going to do, we realize that we're not called both as a, a large body of Christ, which is all Christians, and then as an individual body, this, this church known as Elm Grove Baptist Church, we're not called to just survive or just entertain ourselves, or sing kumbaya and hold hands till Jesus comes back and just hope that we can make it. That's not why we're here. We've not been called to merely exist, but to be an unstoppable force in our community, in our state, in our country, around the world. That's why we are here. And so we've looked at what it is then. If we're going to be an unstoppable force, we realize that we have to be biblical. It means we can't just make it up as we go and think that if we adopt certain practices that, that, that are sort of out there in the world and apply those to the church, well, that's going to work. We've got to go first to the Bible. So that's been our goal, is to look first to the Bible. What was it about that church that got started right after Jesus left the earth that was so incredible? What can we pull from them and sort of apply in principle here in our own church? And so we've looked at what a biblical church is and does. We've looked at a lot of different things, and this week... We're going to continue to look at one small verse in Acts chapter 2, and then from there move somewhere else at at what it is that a biblical church is and does. So if you've got your Bible handy, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Acts. 
but don't get comfortable there. We're going to switch over in just a little bit and turn back to the left just a tad. And so look at the book of Acts, and you'll see as we get to these different scriptures, you'll see the verses on the screen um, as we get there. So hold your place in Acts. I want to say to you this morning that I think that based upon the fact that, that some of us maybe listed different things, reasons why we pray, what we pray about, we all run into problems, it's possible today that many of us, if not all of us, myself included, may have the wrong foundation, the wrong framework, the wrong approach for our prayers. Some of us, we would admit, I don't really know what I'm doing. Talking to God, I think, but I'm not sure that I really know what I'm doing. The truth is that prayer is one of those things we've got to be devoted to. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, and they, talking about all the the people that were in the church, about 3,120 at that point, give or take a few, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We talked about that a lot for the scripture, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we looked at last week, and to prayers. So these are the things we have right after this incredible move of God where 3,000 people in verse 41 are added to the church in one day. And this is not transfer growth. If they came from a church they didn't like down the road and they just come to the church in Jerusalem and they say, hey, look, we're here. We promise not to bring any of the problems that that other church experienced. We're here. We're going to start off. That's not what we're talking about. These are 3,000 people that were radically changed by God, gave their lives to Jesus for the very first time, and joined the church in one day. What do you do about an incredibly awesome but difficult problem just like that? Luke, the author of Acts, records they didn't build a building, they didn't hire new staff, they didn't do any of the things that we might default to doing. Instead, they devoted themselves to Scripture. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to loving one another, just as Jesus loved. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to to being focused on Jesus, and to prayers. And so it's possible, as I said, that we may have the wrong foundation for our prayers. These disciples, they prayed, but they weren't just winging it. They weren't just sort of making it up as they went along and hoping that that might be the right thing to reach the heart of God and to understand Him and to be changed by Him. That's not what they were doing. Jesus had taught them to pray, and so it stands to reason that when they, when Luke records they were devoted to prayers, that it would probably be the type of prayer that Jesus had taught them to pray. And so I want to look this morning at where it is that Jesus taught His disciples to pray and sort of how Jesus told us to do it. Look at Luke chapter 11. As I said, turn back to the left just a little bit. Luke chapter 11. Of course, Luke is written by the same guy that wrote the book of Acts. Luke, who uh, traveled with Paul and and wrote, uh, wrote about the life of Jesus and the life of the church. And so let's look at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It's talking about Jesus. He was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now, pause there for just a second, because when you ask Jesus legitimately to teach you something, that's a loaded question, because you don't get to dictate the answer. You with me on that? And that's tough. When you say, Jesus, I want you to teach me, I want you to show me, I'm not sure the disciples or this particular disciple had in mind maybe what Jesus mentioned. The disciples were some selfish guys at times. They were human. They fought over who was the greatest and who was going to get what in heaven and all that. So maybe they were thinking, look, if we get Jesus to teach us how to pray, he'll, he'll tell us the formula. 
to get what it is that we want from God. Instead, they get this. He said it in verse 2. Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. He gives them a model prayer. What we may know is the Lord's Prayer. And many of us probably have memorized this, though it's from Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's probably the one that we have memorized or maybe more familiar with. But on a separate occasion, Jesus repeats the gist of that prayer. And so we learn that since they're not identical in nature, Jesus didn't, apparently did not feel the need to go verbatim, the, word, the words in Matthew 6 and the words in Matthew 11, that it's not necessarily the words that we're looking for, but what it is behind it. What's Jesus trying to teach us? How is he telling us that we ought to pray? What should we be doing? What should we be about? I want to run through real quickly what I believe to be the framework behind this prayer. Now, you probably have... Uh, memorized, as I said, at some point, or as a kid heard uh, this prayer said over and over again. Maybe you've recited it before. I was—I had the opportunity a few years ago to be the chaplain for uh, for uh, the football team at my alma mater in Louisville, and I had a good friend who uh, was a football coach there, and and he asked me to help them out, and 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 he was an assistant coach, wasn't the head coach, and so I I, I sort of had to be as careful as I could, if you understand what I mean, with sort of what we did and all of that. I didn't want to get him in trouble or the school or anybody in trouble. And so each Friday, what we would do is the team would gather for a team meal. And before before they ate, they had to listen to me talk. And so either they acted like they were really paying attention, so I'd stop. You with me? You, you want to get me to stop? Just really act like you're paying attention. And really, I get it. Okay, I got it. All right, amen. There we go. And so, but but either that or they just, you know, they, they just really hungry and then you know, come on, hurry up. And so, um, so, they, they, would, they would sit and they would listen. I would give a, a short devotion, uh, typically something out of Proverbs about wisdom and living your life and preparing for life's battles just like you would on the football field and so on and so forth. And then we'd pray together and they'd eat. And, and then at the game that night, we'd all gather uh, in the locker room. Right before they'd run out on the field for the kickoff, we'd gather in the locker room. They'd sort of huddle up and, and we'd pray together. And as I said, the head coach was, was, was not the guy who was my friend who I knew basically his uh, faith background and all. The head coach came from a somewhat religious background, but apparently the church that he grew up in was very ritualistic and sort of wooden, and they just repeated and recited some things. Maybe some of you grew up in a church like that. And so what he wanted the prayer to be before the game was the Lord's Prayer. And so all these guys would get together, and somehow they all knew it. Or at least they sort of, you know, they kind of went along with it. You can't hear them because, you know, they've got their heads bowed or whatever. But they, they, they knew the prayer. And I, and I just remember kind of standing there with those guys with a hand on the shoulders of a couple of those players and saying that prayer with them and thinking, you know what, I, I'm thankful that these guys understand that, that there is a God. And that, that in these words, maybe if they pay attention at all to what they're saying, they realize that he is their heavenly father who loves them and, and who wants something for their lives and has forgiven them and, and wants to lead them uh, in, in a way they can trust and, and be with them. But I just thought, you know, I, it's sad because they don't really understand what it is they're saying. And it's not understanding just the words, but it's understanding if all of these things are really meant by us and intended to be a sort of a, a proclamation to God, Lord, this is the prayer of my heart. If that were really the case, then, then I believe those guys would have been changed. But instead, it was just sort of ritualistic. And you may have prayers in your own life 
that you pray on a regular basis. You may say the same words over and over. You may close your prayer the same way. You may open your prayer the same way. And sometimes it can become very ritualistic. And we can almost mimic and imitate that football team. We really have no idea why they were saying what they were saying. So the Lord's Prayer, the framework behind it, what Jesus is going for, I think can help us understand what is it and how is it that we are to pray. Let's look at it. You'll see on the back of your bulletin, if you like to follow along and fill in some blanks, you can do that. Take that home with you. Maybe you do a little bit more study and, and discover a little bit more of what God is saying to you. The disciples prayed, we have to believe, just as Jesus had taught them, and we must do the same thing. So Jesus opens this prayer with basically this theme, recognize who God is. Recognize who God is. How did Jesus say to do it? First and foremost, recognize who God is. Look again uh, at the beginning of verse 2. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your name be honored as holy. There, there, there is a great need, I believe, for us to realize and recognize who it is that we're talking to when we begin to pray. That he is holy. And God is infinite. That means he has no beginning. He has no end. He is uncreated and not dependent upon any of us. God's day is not going to be ruined if we don't talk to him. And yet sometimes we sort of get that backwards. We feel like maybe we're doing a favor to God if we say, you know what, Lord, I'm That prayer was almost five minutes, four minutes and 52 seconds. That's not bad. I'm close to the average there, God. You know, that's 501. I'm above average in my prayers. God's not impressed by all that stuff as much as I would like to believe that he is. Recognize who God is. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And at the same time, Jesus says, call him Father. He is loving. He is caring. He is interested in what's going on in every detail of your life. He is a saving God who sent his very son to die in our place. That is who God is. And we, some of us, would do well today to just stop right there. To say, you know what? Before I leave today, I am going to humble myself before God and just recognize who he is. And recognize that I am not God and He is. And I will recognize that and I will call Him holy and all-powerful and loving and I will call Him Father. But I will stop there. If I can't get past any other part of this prayer, this is how Jesus opens. The most important part of that is recognize who God is. And that doesn't mean that we have to treat Him or alter our language in some way to do that. This is not about the language you use, not about the posture you use. It is about the posture of your heart as it relates to God. When you enter God's presence in prayer, our heart must first recognize who God is. Jesus says, secondly, submit to his deal before ours. Submit to his deal before ours. The second part of verse 2, after he says, your name be honored as holy, what does he say? Your kingdom come. Matthew 6 adds, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Submit to God's deal before I realize that if you are serious, when you say, God, your kingdom come, you realize what you're inviting God to do. Who's in charge in God's kingdom? Not a trick question. Who's in charge in God's kingdom? God. Again, not a trick question. I, I try to make it very simple because I can't handle trick questions. I don't like it You know, when I sit out there and somebody else tells me. God is in charge. So if we are inviting God's kingdom to come, another not a trick question, who are we inviting to be in charge? And then you guys are sharp. 
Some of you are still awake and kicking. I like it. We, we are asking God, when we say, your kingdom come, we are asking for his deal to be more important than our deal. What he wants, more important than what we want in every aspect of our lives. We are desiring God's rule in all things, in every aspect, in the remote corners of our life. And so when we say, your kingdom come, we're not asking God just for your kingdom to come on that person, because, boy, they need to be waking. You know, they need to wake up. God needs to take over. Not, we're saying, God, you know what? In my family, in, in whatever I do, in my work, in my free time, God, in my money, yes, money, God, please be in charge. God, you are the one whose kingdom needs to fall. You are the one who needs to be in charge of all this. I want you to reign and rule supreme in all areas of my life. And so, man, that's pretty extreme. Let me tell you this. When you recognize who God is, is it makes it much easier to submit to what he wants. Some of you have experienced that. You, you've experienced the fact that, well, wait a minute. Now, you're saying that God wants me to give him control of every area of my life. And in essence, I don't have my hands on it anymore. I'm just sort of managing my life on behalf of God who owns it all. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Well, what if he decides to, or I'm not sure I really want him to, You've been there before. I'm a little bit leery about what God might do. If, if I really give my life completely to God, it may mean that he changes a few things. It may mean that he sends me somewhere. It may mean that he sort of has me operate in a different way. And that may be true. But I'll say this. Those who recognize and understand who God is have no trouble trusting and submitting to what he will do. And so it flows naturally that after we recognize who God is as all-powerful and holy and righteous, but at the same time, he's loving, which means that what he's going to do for us is in our best interest, it makes it a whole lot easier then to submit. God, yeah, whatever you want. Some of us today would do well just to stop right there and say, Lord, you know as well as I do, there are however many areas of my life that aren't really controlled by you, that I kind of keep my hands on. Maybe it's my work or my family or my thought life or what I do in my spare time or when nobody's looking or, or it's my money or whatever it may be, God. I, I, listen, I need to submit to your deal before my God. I want you to be in charge, not me. And it's in that that we experience the only way that life can be to the fullest, Jesus said, is that by submitting to his deal before ours. Jesus goes on to give us the principle that we need to admit our dependence, admit your dependence on God. Admit your dependence on God. Look at verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, we, it's tough for us, I think, in 21st century America probably to translate this. But understand that many of those people in first century Israel work on a daily basis. They had to be hired each day, many of them. And if they were not, they didn't eat. So they were literally dependent. God, please give us today our daily bread. I am absolutely moment by moment dependent on you because I can't worry about tomorrow. And I just got to get hired and eat today. Most of us in America don't struggle with the need for daily bread. We don't struggle with the need to be hired each and every single day to do something different. Maybe weekly, 
Maybe we live week to week, or maybe it's monthly, or we just kind of go year by year. But the truth is, the overarching principle comes out in the fact that though we may not live day to day wondering how we're going to eat or how we're going to make it in life, the very fact that we may not have to do that reveals our utter dependence on God. Because if it were not for God's provision, we would have to live minute by minute or day by day. Do you understand? It's not because of us. We are not the ones who have provided the means for us to eat and even to work. Those who are physically able to work, the Bible says that it is God who gives us the ability to go out and to make money. We are absolutely dependent on him, so we then approach him as we ask him to fill our needs and to take care of us. God says, yes, do that. But if we approach him with a spirit of gratefulness, and we do our best to say, Lord, no matter what, I'm going to strive for contentment. And God, I'm going to be satisfied. Because I know that I am dependent upon you for everything, for my very life. I want you to do this. I want you to take the deepest breath that you can without passing out. Ready? Breathe out. Okay, do it again. Okay, one more time. Was that two or three? Something like that? Some of you are out of breath now. <clears throat> okay. Every one of those absolutely dependent. None of us created ourselves. He is the only one who is not dependent upon anyone else to sustain him. Every breath you just took, the ones you're taking now, absolutely dependent upon God. We are also dependent upon him for salvation. Had God not decided that he wanted to redeem all of us and buy us back from the penalty of sin, we would all be lost forever and spend eternity, rightfully so, in hell apart from God. But praise him that he did not give us what what we deserve and instead, gave us salvation and the opportunity to receive that free gift and spend forever with him in heaven. We are dependent on him for that. We cannot earn that. The Bible is very clear. Salvation does not depend on us, but on God alone. And so we are dependent upon him for that. We're also dependent upon him for everything we have and everything we will have. And so we, in our prayers, ask God, please meet our needs. But God, I recognize and I admit my dependence on you for everything. Jesus goes on to call us to commit to selfless living. Commit to selfless living. Look at verse 4. The the very beginning. I just want you to read that first little part until we get to the comma. Read read that with me. And forgive us our sins. That was pitiful. Read it it with me. Ready? And forgive us our sins. We like that part because we got some sins, don't we? All right? Nobody raise your hand. Elbow the person next to you. He's talking about you. Right, or call your call your family at home. You know, he's talking about you. You're not here. You know, that's what. Now, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. We all have our sins. Don't we like this part? And forgive us our sins. You know, the Bible is clear that if we'll confess our sins, we simply agree with God. You know what? You're right. That was sin. I'm wrong. I'm turning from that. I confess it to you. The Bible says in First John that God is always faithful. That means he's going to do it every time, and he's always just. That means he can. He will forgive us and make us right again, clean us up, set us back on our feet, and get us going again. The Bible is clear about that, and we like that part, and I am thankful for that. But look what Jesus says. He doesn't stop there. For we ourselves, in verse 4, also forgive everyone in debt to us. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gets done giving them what we 
most likely would recall as the Lord's Prayer. And he sort of throws on at the end, a few verses after that, he says, by the way, if you don't forgive other people, guess what? God will not forgive you. Hold on a second. I don't like that part. That part's not in Luke. Let me just read Luke because he's not, it's not in there. Understand, Jesus said it all. It's in there. He says, for we ourselves also forgive everyone. The truth is this. If we expect God to love and to forgive us selflessly, we have to do the same. We have to do the same. We like receiving from God as well we should. We, we are desperate for it and completely dependent on it. Love and forgiveness in a selfless way from God. And Jesus says, that's great. Forgive us as we have forgiven other people. If we commit, if we expect rather, that God will love us and forgive us selflessly, we have to do the same. And it says, we also ourselves forgive everyone. You realize that we go back to God with the same stuff over and over again? Think about your life for just a second. Is it not probably five things that you go back to God and say, I'm sorry for this, for that, for that, for that? Five things probably. Maybe some of you more. Don't admit that. Maybe some of you more. But it's typically a handful of things over and over again. Is it not? I mean, it, it, it's one of a few things. And we just go back to God over and over and over again. You know what he does every single time? He forgives and the Bible says that, that when, he's, when he forgets it, it's, it's, he's not holding it against us. He, doesn't, he does not think of that when he thinks of us. He says he's thrown it as far as the east is from the west. You try getting there, you can't do it. You'll never find it. He says he's buried it at the bottom of the ocean, so to speak. You can't get there. And he says that's what he does with our sin, even though we come back to him over and over and over and over about the same thing. You think if anybody would have reason to say, Look, you're not serious. That's enough. You, you just, you're pulling my leg. That's enough. I'm done. It would be God. You would think of anybody. But he says every time he forgives, and if we expect God to do that, then we must do the same for every person. And then Jesus sort of rounds this thing out with this principle. Trust God where he leads you. Trust where God leads you. Commit to selfless living, and then trust where God leads you. The end of verse 4 says this, And do not bring us into temptation. Now, we, we have to compare this a little bit with some other Bible verses that we know. We know that God does not tempt anyone. He's not trying to get anybody to sin. So this word that Jesus is using is not the word that we would think of temptation to do something wrong, but it's, but it's leading us to a point where God is going to allow life to sort of stretch us and press on us in just a little bit. And, and maybe in that, we might be tempted to say, hold on a second, I don't want any more God if this is what it's going to be. Basically, God, please don't lead us down that path. Pray to avoid the trials of life. None of us, if we're honest and in our right mind today, would say, you know what? Life has just been too good for me recently. And something's got to be wrong with that because, you know, I just, I just can't think that life would always be that way. So, God, listen, I know this may not be your deal and, and all, but would you really just cause something awful to happen in my life? God, I, it has been too good. I need a little stress. Um, I, God, listen, I, I'm, I'm struggling here. 
because it's sunny weather all the time. Would you just dump a thunderstorm in my life? And listen, don't let up for about a month and a half or about 10 years. You know, God, I really want to be depressed. Lord, I want to just have life just knock me out. If you're praying that, look, just stop. Okay, listen, some of you, some of us, some of us, we act like we're praying that kind of prayer. But that's, you know, we feel like maybe God's okay. Did God, did I say the wrong thing? Listen, none of us in our right mind. And Jesus, Jesus sort of hints at that. Lord, don't, we're not asking for that stuff. But as we recognize who God is and submit to what he wants in our lives, we can trust where he leads us because we'll understand what the brother of Jesus wrote in James chapter 1. Let me read this to you in verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, not frustration, not overwhelming, not depression, endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, not beaten down and worthless, mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. So in the midst of even though we would pray, God, I really don't want to go through stuff that I don't want to go through. Even in the midst, and you know as well as I do, life's going to throw that stuff at you. Even in the midst of that, we can consider it joy. We can see it from God's perspective because we realize it's through those things that God makes us better, makes us who he wants us to be. And it's in that we can ask for wisdom. God, how do I handle this thing? This is not easy. God, help me. And so we can trust where God leads you, even if it is through a very difficult time, as some of you have maybe recently experienced. All of that. All of this entire framework gives us a very simple pattern, and it's this in our prayers. God first, then us. God first, then us. God first, then us. When I pray, God, your deal, then mine. God, I I, I want you, then whatever I want, maybe second place at best. I am second. God, you first, then us. Every time, every day, in all things. You begin to pray that way. You begin to order your life that way, and it will put things in a different perspective. In a sense, it will close the circuit, the light will come on, and you'll be able to truly connect with God. Jesus taught them to pray like that, and I sort of have to ask myself, well, why? Why why would he teach them to pray like that? I mean, if the church was devoted to prayer and likely prayer along this sort of line, because this is how Jesus taught those specific guys to pray, it would make sense they'd pray this way. Why? As a church, I think we need to pray this way because we need focus on who God is and who he loves. We, We need focus to keep us thinking about why we exist, to bring fame to Jesus and to fulfill his mission. That's it. We need focus because it'll help us direct our energy and our resources and our time and our efforts toward the right things, reaching lost people. We need to pray like this as a church for focus because it'll keep us hungry for God to move in an incredible way. Not only that, but think about it. We need God to move us forward and outward. Realize how easy it is as a church to sort of turn inward, be concerned only about ourselves, and then get in a rut and wonder why is God not really doing anything? Sometimes it's easy as humans to turn inward and think of only ourselves. We need God to move us outward. We need God to move us forward, helping us realize over and over we're not here to merely exist, but to be unstoppable. I'd love for some of you to join me in praying that God would do something here at Elm Grove that no person can take credit for. And nobody can stand back and say thank you. 
Nobody can stand back and say, yeah, we did a pretty good job with that. We would just stand back and say, I really have no explanation. We just tried to keep up with what God was doing, and we tried to just do the best we can to, to, to not get in his way and to not mess it up, and maybe we'd pray for that. But I pray that it's not said of us, that we ask God just to keep us the way we are. That we ask God just to sort of let us huddle up, but instead, that we realize we're here to fulfill the Great Commission to see people get radically saved by God, to become disciples and to to live wholeheartedly for him. So we pray as a church because we need focus, because we need God to move us forward, to move us outward. This human nature is going to say, no, we don't want that. But then as individuals, we need to pray according to this, God first, then us. First and foremost, because the Bible makes it clear that prayerlessness is sin. The Bible says pray without ceasing. Now, you know as well as I do, if you try to pray without ceasing, you're going to die pretty soon because you're going to be awake the whole time. Your body can't sustain that. So understand the flip side of that. Think about it. Ceasing to pray is sin. Pray without ceasing. The Bible says always be in a spirit of prayer, but but praying without ceasing, obviously, just simply leads us to know that prayerlessness is sin. Not only that, but as individuals, we desperately need to hear from God. Some of us go through life and we're just empty. You can, you can gain the whole world, the Bible says, and forfeit your soul. Leave yourself empty. Some of us need to desperately hear from God. We also need to have our hearts revealed and corrected. There's an incredible couple of verses in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 and 24, and David says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You realize that none of us can accurately gauge what our sin and what our hearts are doing to our lives. We need God to judge our hearts. We need God to shine a light on that. God, reveal what's going on. God, help me with my motives and change me and shape me. We need to be corrected. That's how we're made better by God, made holy like he is. You realize most of our problems, think about this, come from our own character flaws. We try to blame it on other people. I'm good at that. I try to, well, it's that person or this person or that situation, whatever. But most of them just sort of emanate from our own character flaws. If we then have our hearts revealed and corrected by God, search me, know me, change me, then there's a good chance that some of the problems we deal with would go away because then our character flaws would be minimized. Ultimately, we pray. We write this down. We pray because each day, demands selfless, desperate prayer. Yesterday's prayer is not good good enough for today. Today's prayer is not good enough for tomorrow. Each day demands. You know it. Some of you will get up and go to work tomorrow. Some of you got family situations you're going home to this afternoon. Some of you just have life issues you're dealing with. You know each day demands selfless prayer, turning from ourselves to God. It's what he requires of us, and it's what ultimately satisfies. It requires desperate prayer. Realizing apart from him, we are nothing, and life has no meaning. Look again at those things you wrote down. Why you pray and what you pray about. Take a look at it. And answer the next question. Does it match up with what Jesus taught? Does it match up with what Jesus taught? God first, then us. God first, then us. Does it match up what I pray it does? And I pray if it doesn't, that you not walk away discouraged, but you walk away saying, God, I, I know I'm going to pray a different way. Lord, I'm going to order my life in a different way. And so this week, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to pray like Jesus taught, but go only as far as you can. 
Some of you this week, you're not going to get past. Father, your name be honored as holy. Some of us need to stop right there in our prayers every day and recognize who God is. Some of us may not get past that. Some of us may not get past your kingdom come. Because if you can't say it and mean it and can't submit to God's deal before ours, don't move on with the prayer. God first, then us. Some of us may need to stop right there. Some of us will then stop at other places. Go as far as you can in your prayers this week and see what God does. Let God change you and see if you don't have what Jesus called streams of living water that just flow out of you. I wonder what God thinks sometimes when he sees us coming in prayer. Well, here comes the person that tries to say all the fancy words. Here comes the person that thinks they'll they'll be able to get to me if they just sort of close the prayer the right. Here comes the bargain hunter trying to get as much as he can for as little as possible. What does God think when he sees us coming? Those who pray selflessly and desperately, God first, then us, have the assurance that God is listening and he is near. God first, then me. Think about what you pray for our church. Pray that your prayers would be that God would give us focus, move us forward and outward, that his agenda and his purposes would always come before ours. In order to be the kind of church that pleases God, we've got to pray selflessly, God first and then us. For some of you to say, man, you're talking an awful lot about selfless living and letting God be in charge. And the reason is this, not because that's just the way we ought to pray, but the Bible says That selflessness, self-denial is the foundation for salvation and eternal life. You cannot trust yourself. You cannot live in charge of your life and receive eternal life from God. His agenda and his purposes must always come before ours, even in how we are seeking salvation. According to what Jesus says, salvation begins with denying ourselves, admitting that we have sinned, and declaring that we want Jesus to be in charge of our lives. Without that, there is no assurance of eternal life. Jesus wants to draw close to you today, but it's got to be his deal first and our deal second. As we close, if the Lord leads you, you're more than welcome to come down and just spend some time in prayer with him on part of maybe what we've talked about today. God, I want to honor you as holy. God, I want your deal before mine. Lord, I admit my dependence on you. God, I commit to selfless living. I'm going to forgive. And I'm going to trust where you lead. Lord, overall, it's going to be you first, then me. If we have those types of individuals, we'll see incredible, incredible change. If we have that type of church, we will be unstoppable. We will make a huge dent for God's glory in this community. We'll see people give their lives to Jesus, and we thought there's no way they'll ever do that. God first, then us. Do it in your prayers this week.